We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. This morning I'd like to give you a message entitled here, uh, When the Church Goes to Court. When the Church Goes to Court. And we are week by week working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And last week we saw what happens when the church fails by neglecting its responsibility to judge those in the body and let the cancer of sin infest. And now we're looking at a similar theme, though from a different angle in our passage. Last week, this Wednesday, July 4th, we celebrated the Declaration of Independence and our our, uh, uh, statement uh, to England that we were no longer going to be treated differently than the other colonies. We are declaring that we are, because the United States of America, as we would be named, was not, uh, did not have equal rights as the British colony, we were declaring ourselves an independent country. In 1789, we ratified our Constitution amended to that Bill of Rights for each citizen. We as Americans have really been about our rights and and rightly so for liberty's sake. But in God's kingdom, He places high priority in actually setting aside our personal rights for others because of the mercies of God and being a living sacrifice for others just as Jesus was for us. In Paul's day, the Greeks in general and the inhabitants of the city of Athens in particular were known for their involvements in the courts. One of the Greek playwrights, Aristophanes, had one of his characters look at a map in one of his plays he wrote and ask this question, where is Greece located? And the character The other character points to it on on the map, and this character then replies, well, there must be some mistake because he can't see any lawsuits going on. That's how big of a deal lawsuits in the day of Paul were in the nation of Greece, in the Roman Empire. Many times it would be the wealthy and the elite who would take the poor to court and win through bribery of the judge or the witnesses. And it was generally corrupt and not known for justice. And a lawsuit-happy culture had trickled into the church and Corinth in Greece to people, ironically, who had been made one and brought near by the reconciling power of the blood of the cross. And it is to this issue that Paul addresses. Just to summarize, apparently in our text, one brother, we'll call him Man A, he had cheated or defrauded another man, Man B, in some way. And so, to address the grievances, man B took man A before the civil magistrates at what was called the Bema, the the judgment seat in the town, in the city, which is publicly located in the heart of the marketplace. The marketplace would be like your mall. That's where everybody gathered and did their business and, and gathered their food and their groceries and other items and merchants gathered. And Paul says in verse 7 that that event was a defeat for the church. You may have won the case, you may have won the battle, but you lost the war because you were airing your dirty laundry before the lost world to whom your witness needed to be pristine. It was a defeat for the church in every way, for the community as a whole, as well as for the two brothers because it didn't get to the heart of the issue, two believers not getting along. You might ask, well, last week was on church discipline with a man who was living with his stepmother. 
And chapter 5 through 7, you said last week, had this theme here, generally, of sexuality. How does chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, because we'll get to sexuality next week in verse 12 to the end of chapter 6. How does verses 1 and 11 fit in the context of chapter 5 through 7, which seems to have this common theme of proper sexuality in the kingdom of God? And at first sight, this section here might seem to not fit and be kind of an intrusion to Paul's comments on sexual morality, which come in chapter 7 from a different perspective. But there's a, a thread here, actually, that Paul is continuing to weave through chapter 5 through 7. And it is this. We've seen repeatedly through chapters 1 through 4, the first major section of the book, where Paul lays the foundation that the church is to be founded upon the wisdom of the cross and the crucified Savior. We've seen the theme here that the Corinthians were a proud, they were a competitive, they were an assertive people, but also they were, they were, they were, they were passive in their Christianity. They thought they had arrived and needed to go no further. They thought they had reached the pinnacle of what it meant to be a Christian. They were concerned most of the time for their rights. And their rights had virtually taken over from their redemption as the mainspring of their life together. It was all about their rights rather than the redemption that they had in Christ as new creatures. And as a result, they were very touchy. Extremely touchy if anyone infringed on their rights or inhibited their freedom. And this is in general about the church. There's certainly some people who are exceptions. But this led then to grievances between fellow Christians. We already saw in chapters 1 through 4 that some of them were, were, uh, were, were, were forming cliques and denigrating other people who were not part of their clique or followed other Christian leaders. And Paul says, no, follow Christ. And the whole point of following Christ is to walk in the wisdom of the cross, which is to lay down yourself for, for, for the sake of others as Jesus did for us. But these grievances could, could start to harbor and start to fester and, and, and not end and not have closure. And so now in chapter 6, 1 through 11, this is just an extension of that pride again. Because they're taking fellow believers into the law courts, not for criminal offenses. And let me just say it at the out front to make myself clear that the courts of our system uh, are where we do need to go for criminal grievances. But we're talking about civil disagreements here that will come up in chapter 6. And they were taking the law courts now, and it was, a, it was a long process, it was an expensive business, and never once did it improve the relationships in the body of Jesus Christ. But friends, and this is true, to just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago when this was written, once a group of Christians becomes obsessed with its rights, in its own little kingdom, instead of its responsibilities before God and the love of God in the gospel, there will be untold trouble until they find their way to true repentance. And true repentance is where all of this changes. So that's our text, the background for it in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And it is that very truth that our Lord and Savior laid out that God's people, kingdom citizens, are to be people who make peace because we have the one who has made peace through the blood of His cross. That could be a, a, a key emblem of who we are as believers. A reconciling people. We've been given a ministry of reconcil- reconciliation. 
that Paul will now, in chapter 6, 1-11, through 11, apply. So that's the back story here. Blessed are the peacemakers. And what Paul wants these people to understand, that he wants you and I to understand, that the Holy Spirit wants us to grasp today, is that the wisdom of the Gospel is enough to solve conflicts among believers. If we are who we say we are in Christ, the wisdom of the Gospel, the wisdom of the crucified and risen Savior applied to His body, to His church, is enough to solve conflicts if we will be submissive to it. Look what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust, the unrighteous, and not before the saints, or not before the holy ones, believers? Dare you? What Paul is saying here is, do you have the gall Do you actually have the nerve, the audacity to air out your dirty laundry to the very people we're trying to win to Christ by the good news in our changed lives? And so the emphasis is, as in the preceding passage, chapter 5, the heavy artillery, the thrust of the passage is aimed at the church in general, the community of God who is tolerating these things going on, allowing such a thing to happen. And the very first thing I want you to understand is this. And it's right off the bat very clear. God does not expect the world to make peace between two Christians. God does not expect the world to make peace between two Christians. You see, He has said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that we have the wisdom of God. We have an asset that has been poured into us, the Scripture that the Holy Spirit reveals to us, the Gospel of Jesus Christ that reconciles that the world doesn't have. We have an aspect of wisdom and a way of looking at the world that the world would never have. We can, we can see the origins of the world. We can see the end of the world. We can see eternity, where that leads to, and what that will be like. And we can see, because of the unfolding plan of God in the Scriptures, uh, Jesus Christ and, 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 and the promise of a Redeemer, one who would crush the head of the serpent, but his heel would be bruised. We have that perspective. And the world doesn't have that. So how foolish it is for people who do not have peace with God than to try to make peace between two believers. And it wasn't the world's fault. It was the believers going to the court system to solve this civil dispute. Dare any of you when he has a case against his neighbor. Dare go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. It's like this. It's, imagine that um, you're, you, you are... Um, you have a vehicle and you notice some things that are going on with it and you take it into the mechanic's garage. And you've been bringing this, your car to this particular garage for a long time and, and you trust this mechanic and he's done a good job in the past, but you notice something strange. And people in the community seem to respect the company. It appears to be flourishing. The boss seems to be in charge. The employees are helpful and efficient. But one day you notice that as, as you're in a different part of town, you, you spy something a little bit odd. And there in a total different business, a total different garage, was one of the mechanics who was there at the garage where you used to take your vehicles. And he had brought his own car, this mechanic who used to work at this prior garage, brought his own car, not to the garage where he worked, but a different outfit. Won't you start to scratch your head a little bit? And the person he was taking it to wasn't even a qualified mechanic at all. 
In fact, he had no training with cars. And now you get a little bit worried, right? Well, what am I doing with this guy, the guy who owns, the, who's been working my car, takes his car to this guy who's had no training. What's going on here? If this mechanic couldn't trust his own uh, colleagues to look after his car, why should I, right? And what's more, if this man is letting an unqualified operator do the job, it looks like he doesn't know or care himself the kind of skill that's required. And that's more or less what Paul is saying here in verse 1. This should make us raise our eyebrows when we are going to the lost to make peace between two believers. He's given stern words in chapter 5, and now Paul says, Dare? Do you have the audacity, the gall, the nerve to do this? Because Paul even regards the community of Corinth as messed up as they are. He regards them, this small and muddled community in Corinth, as the community he has said in chapter 1 of God's people. To whom God will, because they are God's people, one day entrust this task of judging the world, including the angels. Where has he got that idea from? Look in chapter 6 and verse 2. Do you not know that the saints, believers, the holy ones, shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are at least esteemed in the church. And what what he's saying is this. And the wording's a little confusing there. What he's saying is this. Don't you know we're going to judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? So if you have law courts that deal with matters of this life here. You should have people in your church who are wise enough to be able to judge these civil disputes among believers. Is what Paul is saying. Now, what he is referring to about judging the world and judging angels might seem a little contradictory to what he said in chapter 5 where he said, you guys... I told you not to judge the world because what they were doing was they were saying, well, we can't, we can't uh, participate. We can't go along with the world uh, because they're, they're uh, adulterers or they're uh, swindlers or, or they have this kind of character. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, yes, you can. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. Don't judge the world that way. God's going to judge the world in the end. But who you need to focus your discernment and judgment on is the body of Jesus Christ to make sure you're living it holy. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. And now in chapter 6, it might seem contradictory for him to say, one day you're going to judge the world. But here's what he means by that. Go with me to the book of Jude. It's almost toward the end of the Bible. Jude and verse 14 and 15, right before Revelation. So if you get to the end, flip through Revelation. If you don't turn too fast, you're going to get to... Uh, Jude, right before Revelation. And Jude, verse 14 and 15, says this. The bottom part of verse 14 says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints. This is a prophecy that the Lord will return to this earth. And notice what He says in verse 15. To execute judgment upon all and to convince or convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed 
and of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoke against them. What he's saying is Jesus is going to return. He's going to return with his people, with believers. And they're going to judge the world. So when Paul says, don't you know in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they're going to judge the world. He's talking about a future day. In the end, did you know that we as God's people will judge the world with Jesus Christ? This is what he he says also in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26 through 27. It reminds the early church, one of the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2, he reminds them of this task in the last days. He says in Revelation 2.26, He that overcomes and keeps or is doing my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter. They shall be broken to shivers even as I received of my Father. And all this is because of what the prophet Daniel has prophesied in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 22, which I'll read quickly here. Daniel 7 and verse 22, Scripture says this, Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So when Paul says, you ought to be be able to judge these civil matters in the church, because one day, they're going to have an even bigger job, and you're going to judge not just the nations for the rejection against Jesus Christ. You're going to also be judging the rebelling angelic realm, the demons of Satan. You shall judge angels, is what he's saying in chapter 6. It's because of Daniel 7, verse 22. In other words, what he's saying is, we will participate, believers. This is, this is a truth in the future here that we need to have faith in. Because we will participate one day in God's judgment at the end of the age... Not only the world, but also the angels will be judged by the people of God in that day. Can't you even judge your own? Can't you even discern matters of wisdom and settle disputes among the church? Is what God is saying. You see, in verse 5 and verse 6, he says, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that should be able to judge or discern between his brethren. But brother goes to law, goes to the courts with brother, and that before the unbelievers, Paul says. So there's a trial between two brothers before a pagan court, and Paul says that's no innocent matter. That's a shameful thing. It's a shameful thing that you can't work out disputes among yourselves. Because it reveals how lacking in truly Christian wisdom they are. How they, not, how they have not applied the wisdom of the cross to their situation. How poorly they understand their true place in Christ. The irony of all this is they brag that they do. They brag that they do. And Paul says, uh, here's exhibit A that you don't. In this passage, this whole passage, might seem to just address the problem of these two, brother, or these two Christian brothers... Uh, believers who are appearing before the civil magistrates in Corinth. But I want you to understand this. Paul's theology, and so it should be with us as well, because this is the Scripture, is that theology and how we live are married together. They are not separate things. And the, the, Paul's understanding of God and how things will work in the future, Paul says then this is how we understand how things work now and how you work it out. 
that it gets a workout in real life where the rubber meets the road. So theology for Paul isn't just these theories and this abstract idea, but it's the application of the gospel to real life world. And friends, if we're going to be mature in Christ, that is the step of maturity, applying the things that we know to real life, to where the rubber meets the road. And I'm going to get into that here toward the end of the message and explain what I mean by that. So there's a tension between what God has done and what God will do, right? And also the commands of how we live that out day to day and each moment of life. Paul has in other passages told them that they don't return evil for evil in 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, Romans 12, verse 17. He reflects the teaching and example of Jesus Christ. He tells them to overcome evil with good, even if it means personal loss. And so, when Paul says this, in verse 6, brother goes to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers, he's saying the point of this is that God doesn't expect the world to make peace between us, but God has given the wisdom of the cross to make peace between us. And you're going to the lost, the unbelieving world, to do what you should be able to do. To take the loss. To forgive. To rectify wrongs. First Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Peter also says you've been given everything you need that pertains to life and godliness, and he implies in Jesus Christ. So the basis of you and I were wronged against another, another brother or sister, another believer, how do we handle those grudges? How do we handle conflict resolution? If our hearts are not set on eternal things, 1 Corinthians 6, 1-11 was how they handled it. But if our heart is in tune with the Lord, here's how we handle it. We might have a, an offense done to us um, uh, that, that doesn't just evaporate just because the person's a Christian, right? Just because someone sinned against you and you're a Christian doesn't mean that, that that offense just goes up in the thin air, right? No, it doesn't. In fact, probably if it's another believer, it might even feel more betrayed, right? But expect that of people who are not believers in Jesus. But if it's someone who claims the name of Jesus Christ... Uh, a simple I'm sorry might seem a little bit disproportionate, right? There's a, a wrong that has been done against you, an offense against you. But friends, because we are dealing with fellow Christians, God has given us all the tools to rectify personal conflict and reconcile with one another in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here's how we need to understand here's what we need to understand. Here's how we need to look at it. <clears throat> the promise of God's wrath. His eternal wrath, his anger against a brother and sister who has offended you doesn't apply, does it? Because Romans 8.1 says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says God hasn't destined Christians for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So doesn't that seem like if a Christian sins against you, they're going to get away with it? Well, so where do we turn to our turn, and what do we need to believe that justice will be done, that Christianity isn't just a mockery of a serious sin that might be done against you? Well, the answer to that is what the Corinthians missed. The answer to that is the cross of Jesus Christ. All the wrongs that have been done against us by genuine believers were avenged in the death of Jesus Christ. He paid for that sin. This is a staggering fact that all the sins 
were laid on Jesus. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The suffering of Jesus Christ was real punishment. And the recompense of God and every hurt you have ever received from a fellow Christian was put on Jesus. So Christianity doesn't make light of sin. It doesn't add insult to our injury. But on the contrary, it takes the sins that have been done against us and the sins that you and I do against others so seriously that to make them right, God had to send His Son to suffer more than we ever could make anyone suffer and punish them for what they did to us. Or someone punished us for what we did to them. And if we go on holding a grudge against a fellow believer, we're saying in effect that the cross of Christ was not a sufficient payment for the sins of that believer who sinned against you. And that is an insult to Christ and His cross you don't want to give. And you're saying, well, does that mean we just do nothing? No, I'm going to explain what our proper response is because we're new here is toward the end. But what Paul is saying here is that when we properly respond... Not only does it glorify God, build up His church, but it also builds our witness. Because when Christians can make peace to the wisdom of the cross, that says a whole lot to the world. And when we do not handle conflict biblically, it harms our witness. So there is a, there is a, there is a connection to God's mission of saving the world here and how we act. The third thing I want you to understand is what he says uh, here before in verse 7. He says, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. He says, Why not rather take the wrong? In this civil lawsuit, he's telling the one who's been sinned against, Just take the loss. Just take the loss. And then he takes the other guy, man B or man A, whichever one it was, and he he says this... Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded, the one who, who, uh, who, who is sinned against? And then he says to the other man in verse 8, Nay, you do wrong and defraud, and that your brother. So he says, listen, take the loss. That's far less of an offense to Jesus Christ in his name. Absorb the loss of that offense against that man. That's how you need to respond. And to the one who did the offense, he says, How could you do this against his brother? So neither one gets off the hook, right? They both have wrong thinking that need to be dealt with. But now he reminds them in verses um, 9 through 11 that they have been made new. So God has given the wisdom of the cross to make peace between us. But God has made us new to make peace between us. And this is the crux of the matter here. Okay, He says in verse 9 through 11, Don't you know? Know you not? How could you forget that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators. That's a broad word for all kinds of sexual immorality. Very broad. Neither idolaters, those who place things in worship over God himself, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind refer to homosexual relationships, the active and the passive uh, partners in that relationship, nor thieves, those who take, steal, swindlers, nor covetous, nor drunkards, those who allow themselves to be ruled by substances, nor revilers, those who mouths tear people apart, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, there's two reasons he's bringing this to light. Number one is this. Those are the very people you're trying to get your wisdom from and reconciling to believers. The unbelievers. This is where they are. How are they going to pass on biblical wisdom to you and the wisdom of the cross, which is really at the core of getting to the root of the conflict resolution? But secondly, you're also acting like them. And don't deceive yourselves. He says, do a heart check. Do a heart check. Make sure you are who you say you are. You say you know the Lord Jesus Christ. You say He's redeemed you. You say He's your Savior. You say He's your Lord and Master. Well, let's get our theology and our life to match up. Let's walk worthy of the vocation, of the calling that you, that you say you've been called to, is what He's saying. So there's two prongs there. Don't get your wisdom from the world. And secondly, don't be like the world if this is who you say you are. And He reminds them that God has made them new. Verse 11. And such were some of you. You used to be outside of the kingdom of God. You had no hope of inheritance in the kingdom of God in and of yourself. Because you were adulterers. You were fornicators. You were swindlers. You were in a homosexual lifestyle. You were a reviler of other men. You had no chance of inheriting the kingdom of God on your own. And friends, that's how all of us are. We are shades of all these things. This isn't an exhaustive list, by the way. The Ten Commandments gives us a more fuller list, doesn't it? A more full list of where we fail to live up to God's law. But friends, before God, we all stood condemned in His courtroom. Right? But Paul says this in verse 11. This is what you were. So something has changed. Something has happened. They are citizens of the kingdom of God, is what Paul is saying here. And because of this, you are washed. Those blemishes, that stain, your dirty record, your filth, even your self-righteous deeds were blots against you. They were ordinances of condemnation against you. You could not enter into God's presence. That's what you were, but you are washed clean. You're washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Later on, he'll talk about them being bought with the price. Peter says that price was the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been washed. And then he says in verse 11, You are sanctified. You are set apart. You are removed from this lifestyle and you are brought to be made one with Jesus Christ in holy living by loving God and loving neighbor. That's what holy living is. And you are brought into that. You were sanctified. You were set apart for God. You were a tool for the Master's use. And then he says... You are justified. You are justified. You have been declared before God perfect. You are looked at by God as through the record of Jesus Christ, the one who stood in your place, as the one who has never sinned and the one who has always obeyed, who has fulfilled all God's commands, though punished as an innocent lamb on the cross for our sins. Paul says, This is who you are. You're made new. But notice what he says. And don't just pass over these phrases here at the end. He says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying, Here are those who will not inherit the kingdom. 
whom God through His people is going to judge, and you're allowing lawsuits to be brought before them. And now He says, understand who you really are in light of eternity, in light of the Gospel, and understand your witness in light of eternity. And friends, this is always uh, how Paul addresses problems. He gets back to Jesus Christ. He did this in chapter 5 and and said, Remember, Jesus is your Passover lamb. He's been in your place. He was the innocent who takes away the sins of the world and you're allowing sin back in. He gets back to the Gospel. He said this now in chapter 6. This is who you are in Christ. And over and over, to solve these problems, Paul will go back and say, by, uh, by weaving wisdom through this, be what you are. Walk according to what you are, what your true identity is. What he's saying is this, in the name of the Lord Jesus is, by God has washed you through the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. He's removed you from the wicked and will not inherit the kingdom. And therefore, live out this new life in Christ and stop being like the wicked by the power of Christ. So the name of Jesus Christ refers to the authority of Jesus Christ on behalf of the believer in terms of His saving work. So what Paul is saying is this. Because who you are now in Jesus Christ, washed, sanctified, justified, if God were not to believe these things to be true about you, God would be a liar. But Jesus Christ has made you these things in Him. And He as the authoritative Son of God over all creation stands and declares this over you. And He says, now walk in that. Walk in that. And then He says, this has happened in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. By the Spirit of our God. That 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 uh, uh, the Spirit is the way that God in this new age, taking us from the present evil age, as those who will not inherit the kingdom, taking us into the new age of what God has done in Christ, the Spirit is the way that God in this new age applies Jesus Christ's work to me personally. It's by the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying is referring to what God has done for His people in Christ and this has been done by the Holy Spirit. And friends, for Paul here, there is a relationship between the experience of grace in Christ and one's behavior that that has experienced grace. And that relationship is so tight you can't find where they run together. And Paul is concerned as anyone that um, <clears throat> that, that, that we should have right behavior out of our true experience of grace. What he wants us to understand here is that it's only possible by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. It's not by me waking up one morning and saying, I'm going to really try harder. Today's my day. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. No, what has happened in the Gospel is that when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He makes you alive. The Bible calls that regeneration. John describes it this way in John chapter 3, Jesus' words, being born again, being made alive, is how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. And so what he wants us to understand is this, that God, when He places a believer in Christ, He has turned the power of the ages, so that the power and dominion of the present evil age does not need to have dominion over you, but now the power of the Holy Spirit captivates you and has dominion over you. And life 
See, the Corinthian problem was that they didn't understand what it meant to be spirit people. Spirit people. People whose realities of the future are already at work in their present day. In the present age. Through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is more than just a creed. More than just words, but He is a transformation, the power in our lives to live. So how do we apply these principles here of not allowing the world to be the one who resolves our conflicts, but allowing the people of God through the wisdom of the cross to, uh, to, to resolve conflicts because we're made new. And Ken Sand has written a book called The Peacemaker, a guide to conflict resolution that's very helpful. I'd recommend it, and I think it's going to be, uh, I'm going to turn it into a 12 week study in the future for one of our Sunday school classes. But he has four principles here. Four principles. And I'll expound on these in a minute. First is glorify God. How can I please and honor the Lord in this situation? Someone has sinned against me, and I'm going to pursue this truth blessed are the peacemakers, and make peace with that. How do we apply this? Now, some of our default position to that is simply, oh, we'll just, you know, not say anything. And there are situations where you shouldn't. There are situations where conflict does need to be resolved, and by you not saying anything, you're enabling the sin. So, first of all, glorify God. How can I please and honor the Lord in this situation? Second, make sure you get the log out of your own eyes, Jesus said. Have I, is there any way that I may have contributed to this conflict? A lack of communication, a, 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 uh, an attitude, a, an air that I may have passed on. Uh, what do I need to do about it? Thirdly, go and show your brother his fault. And these are laid out certainly in Matthew chapter 18. How can I help others to understand how they contributed to this conflict? And then fourthly, go and be reconciled. How can I demonstrate forgiveness and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? So let me quickly work through what he means by these four things. Glorify God. How can I please and honor the Lord in this situation? The Bible tells us that we are as much as possible are to live at peace with all men. right? And Jesus' reputation, as we see here, is affected by the way I get along with others. Especially fellow believers. And we need to be on guard against Satan's schemes because he'll love to put wedges between us, right? And false teachings that promote selfishness and may inflate conflict. They're false beliefs. So in this, if we're going to glorify God, we need to trust that God is control and He's working for my good and the good of others even when I must undergo suffering of being sinned against or wronged against by someone else. And so we give God praise and we thank Him uh, for, for His goodness and His help. And then we obey what God commands, even when it's difficult. We require a setting aside, a crucified life, putting aside our egos. And so God has put conflict in our lives. He's not removed conflict from His church, has He? Later on, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 that God uses conflict as a way to show the, to, to display in His church those who are genuine, verse actually says. But we're to obey God's commands and we're going to see conflict as an opportunity. As an opportunity to serve others by helping them find godly solutions. And us finding our own godly solutions. And we're to cooperate with God. Because God will show you things in conflict. He'll show you attitudes that come up in your heart. That you're like, wow, that's really there. He'll show you habits. He'll show you unchristlikeness that needs to be pruned away. And... 
And glorifying God means seeing myself as a steward and managing my resources and situations so that God will say through this conflict, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You did biblical conflict resolution. So that's the first part, glorify God. <clears throat> Thinking through that. Okay, Lord, please help me glorify you in this situation and not let my little ego to be the thing that overpowers it. But secondly, get the log out of your own eye, right? So you need to find out if something's really worth fighting over, right? So by God's help, you need to define the issues and how they're related. And the issues that are, only the issues that are too important to be overlooked. Personal issues. Minor offenses, we need to respond in, 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 in a grace that simply absorbs it. Issues that need to be addressed we need to make sure our attitude is right. First of all, how do you make sure your attitude is right? How much has God forgiven you, first of all? needs to be the thing that goes through your mind. What does the Bible say about being gentle toward others? And if my heart is one that seems to really focus on this event and just consumes me with anxiety, I need to replace that anxiety, which is sin, with prayer and trust. I need to deliberately think about what is good and right in others. Because if someone has sinned against you, you know what you're going to be thinking about? Just that very thing. And they're going to be connecting, and this thing, and that thing, right? And it's like a windshield, spiderweb spider cracking. But friends, just as in you, God, because of His common grace, also has good in people. You need to see the good as well. Think about what's good and right in others. And then, consider how much it will cost you emotionally, spiritually, financially, physically. Continue the conflict instead of simply settling it God's way. And then see my rights to advance God's kingdom. Put what you know to be your rights under the submission of God's kingdom to serve others. And ask yourself to take the log out of your own eye. Am I guilty of some reckless words, some falsehood, some gossip, some slander, some empty talk? Have I kept my word and fulfilled my responsibilities before the Lord? Have I abused my position of authority? Have I respected those in authority over me? Am I treating others as I would want to be treated? Am I perhaps in this being motivated by lust of the flesh, pride, love of money, fear of others, wanting good things that might not necessarily be wrong, but wanting them too much? And if God reveals the law that's in you, then you need to repent. That means to change the way you are thinking so that you turn away from your sin and turn toward God. You need to confess that sin by addressing those who you affected, by avoiding in your apologies if I've offended you, maybe I've offended you, the buts, the ifs, the maybes, by admitting specifically what I did that was wrong. Sorry I hurt your feelings. No. Sorry I said this, which probably made you feel, you know. Be specific. Apologizing for hurting others. Accepting the consequences of my actions. Explaining what I will do differently in the future and asking for forgiveness. That's true biblical confession. Okay? Not Sorry about that. Now that's fine if you accidentally step on someone's toe, right? Literally. 
Change my attitudes and behaviors by praying for God's help, focusing the Lord so I can overcome my own personal idols and blind spots, studying the Word of God, and putting into place godly character. So that's the second thing. Get the log out of your eye. Thirdly, in conflict resolution. And this is a difficult part right here. So far, we talked about our own personal part. So what about the part where the person has sinned against you? What do you do now? And this is something that just that shouldn't be passed over. It would not be good for both parties to do this. Go and show your brother his fault. A sin, how do you know if a sin is too serious to overlook? Can Stan list these things? If it's dishonoring God, certainly. If it's damaged our relationship. If it's hurting or might hurt other people. If it's hurting that offender and diminishing that person's usefulness to God. And so, when it's time to confront that person, with God's help, here's what you need to do. Listen responsibly by waiting patiently while they speak. Concentrating on what they say. Clarifying their comments with the appropriate questions. What do you mean by that? Or am I understanding you correctly? Or is this what you're saying? Reflecting their feelings, concerns. and uh, Where you can agree with them, agree with them. Okay? You need to choose a time and a place that's going to be productive. To have a productive conversation. In the lobby after church might not be a good thing, right? But can I meet with you at such and such a time, such and such a place? Let me clear something up here. 1 Corinthians 13, believing the best about others until I have facts to prove otherwise. Speaking in person whenever possible. Stating objective facts rather than personal opinions. Using the Bible not as a bludgeon to pound them on the head, but use it carefully and tactfully. Ask for feedback. Ask if you anything you need to be corrected in. Offer solutions. Recognize your limits and stop talking what you said is reasonable and appropriate. And if you can't, if that if, if solving a dispute with someone in private doesn't happen, if the matter's too serious to overlook. And that's what Paul's saying is that in 1 Corinthians 6, another person needs to be brought in his wives. So seek help from, suggest as you're dealing with this and you're not coming to a resolution that you and the, uh, the other person seek help from someone who is a spiritually mature advisor. You can help both of them see things more objectively. And then fourthly, go and be reconciled. What does it mean to forgive? Ken Sand says this. It means four things. <clears throat> Number one, I will no longer dwell on this incident. Number two, when I forgive you, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I'll remember when you, but you, know. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And number four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or to hinder our personal relationship. That's forgiving someone. That's a process, though, isn't it? Certainly needs to be a, a mental decision, but it's also a process. When I'm having a difficult time forgiving someone, with God's help, I will, if necessary, talk with that person to address some unresolved issues and confirm repentance. Renounce the desire to punish the other person, to make that person earn my forgiveness, or demand guarantees that I will never be wronged again. 
Again, assess my contribution to the problem if I have a difficult time forgiving it. Recognize the ways that God can use that situation for good and that God has forgiven me, not only in this situation, but in the past as well. And draw on God's strength through prayer, through the Word, if necessary, some Christian counseling. And if we're going to, be in rec- going to be reconciled with others, we need to say with God's help, I'm going to demonstrate forgiveness and practice replacing, renewing our minds with these things. Replacing painful thoughts and memories with good thoughts and memories, certainly on a psychological level. But being positive to and about that person who you've forgiven. If all you can think is negative things, then I wonder if you've really forgiven them, right? But these things... If you're going to forgive them, if you have these negative thoughts, these things need to be positive actions to help your thinking. Serving, loving, constructive things for that person that you forgive is appropriate. Controlling my tongue, saying what's helpful and beneficial, seeking counsel from spiritually mature advisors, doing right no matter what others do to me, Recognize my limits by resisting temptation. Keeping my eyes on God's faithfulness. Continuing to love my enemy. Those are some suggestions by Ken Sand. And I went into a lot of detail that way. But there, and there's, there's some handouts there on the back table there at the end of the service um, with all these things there to, to help you if you're working through conflict. Friends, I want to close with this. One day all of us will stand in the courtroom of God, won't we? And we are born into this world condemned. We have broken all the Ten Commandments in one way or another, the Scripture says, in thought or in action. And friends, there is no excuse, no alibis we can make. God sees straight to the heart. And our eternal destiny and life of God depends on it. And friends, the Bible says, for believers, you have one who has stood in your place. For the unbeliever, You need to trust in the one who is willing to stand in your place. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the advocate. Because Jesus Christ absorbed all the wrong, all the sin upon himself. Your sin. And you will no longer be able to point to somebody else and say, But they, because it's on you. And the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is that Jesus Christ, because of your sins, which were weighing down and carrying you to hell, Jesus Christ has stepped in your place on the cross. And he has paid for your sins. The just for the unjust. The righteous one for the unrighteous. That's the good news of the gospel. But Jesus wasn't just a nice religious leader who did that. Jesus was very God of very God. And so God accepted his sacrifice. And the Bible says that three days later, God physically raised him up from the dead. And so that all who trust in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins, change their way of thinking and actions because of what Jesus has done, now can walk in new life, like Paul reminds these Corinthians there. That's the good news of the Gospel. And friends, Jesus has told us to repent and believe the good news of the Gospel in Mark chapter 1. Believers, you constantly need to repent and believe the good news. Not to be saved once and for all, but to keep relationship with the Lord Jesus. Unbelievers, If you've never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, His arms are beckoning. He is willing to sit with you and invite you to His table through His work on the cross. Because we all have an appointed court date 
with the Lord. If there's somebody here who has never put their trust in Jesus Christ for new life now and for all eternity and have the life of God poured into them by the Holy Spirit through the authority of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the grave and the empty tomb and the one who is exalted. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. And I invite you this morning to speak with me on the way out or with another certainly room full of capable people who would love to share with you the good news of Jesus Christ and how He's changed their lives. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Is there anyone here this morning would indicate that Jesus Christ is calling them and today is their day where they are turning to Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord over their lives. They walked in darkness in the kingdom of darkness and today is the day that they are choosing place their strength and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Anybody would indicate that this morning with a raise of hand? And this morning, believers, is this how we're walking in the truth that we are made new? Through justification by His blood, being declared righteous, through the washing of of our sins and through being set apart to fellowship with God. Is that how you as an individual is walking in faith? Is that how us as a church together are walking? Let's pray. Lord, again, we praise and thank you for the good news of the Gospel. To those who are hungry, it is the bread of life. To those who have ears to hear, it is music. Those whose eyes are dull of hearing, whose hearts have no appetite for your word, Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit would do the change that needs to be done. Make us as believers walk by faith in who you say we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dennis will come and close us.